This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. God gives some people careers in multiple sectors, and those who are so privileged can see life through multiple perspectives and lenses. Having worked in many sectors, they see potential connections, friction points, and system impacts. My guest today is one of those people who God blessed with many different careers from which she has learned to be a great leader and consultant. Today, we are talking about the impact of values, community, and systems on diversity and inclusion. My guest, Dr. Monica Corbett-Rivers, has worked as a corporate executive, academic, nonprofit leader, and consultant for over 20 years. She has served clients in industries from diverse sectors, including healthcare, technology, entertainment media, government, financial services, manufacturing, nonprofit, higher education, and clergy leadership. From newly appointed managers to seasoned senior level executives, she adds value by helping clients to align their organizational mission, business, and people strategies. She frequently advises on how to integrate employee experience principles and DEI perspectives to elevate organizational health and engagement. Dr. Monica has also integrated health psychology and neuroscience perspectives in support of employee and leader resilience initiatives. She holds a BA degree in psychology from Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, and MS and PhD degrees in clinical psychology from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Monica is a performance-oriented strategic thinker who is driven by a deep commitment to optimize the health and development of organizations through informed and contextually sensitive methodologies and strategies. So welcome, Dr. Monica. Welcome, Monica. So delighted to have you on The Voice of Leadership and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Well, thank you, Dr. Karen. It's a pleasure to be with you today, certainly. I am delighted, and I really look forward to our conversation. We have many perspectives in common, and so I really look forward to unpacking a lot of those. But first of all, since your career has spanned many different kinds of positions and sectors, let's start first with your corporate career. What kinds of internal corporate roles have you held? Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Karen. I have had a varied career and I think your listeners will probably be relieved to hear that I haven't had internal roles in all of those industries that you named. That would have been been, uh, quite a journey. But uh, I am, as as you mentioned, a clinical psychologist by training and started my career post-internship in higher education leadership. And so um, was fortunate to uh, finish my clinical training at, at Duke and was invited to stay on there. And so that was my first taste of, of formal leadership 
And as you mentioned, I then moved on to clinical, to uh, faculty work, but it was the sort of translation of uh, my psychological training in service of organizations that led me into corporate roles. And so I began as a consultant and after having uh, several longstanding client uh, relationships was uh, invited to lead uh, professional development um, actually for another university initially, uh, Wake Forest University. And this was after having spent 10 plus years working with leaders at all levels, as you mentioned, across multiple sectors. But it was that curiosity that, that, that led me into that internal role. And from there, I was recruited to lead engagement and learning for, um, as a, at the level of vice president for a multi-state health system. Stayed there and am now a, a managing consultant for a global uh, leadership development organization. So have partnered, again, have walked alongside leaders uh, for a number of years and also led internally. Well, that's quite a storied background for sure, as I sort of implied. So you have a lot of different lenses and a lot of perspectives, and we want to hear about that today. So what perspectives would you say that you've developed about talent, about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what companies really need today based on that lens and that view at the corporation level? Wonderful question. So I've developed an ecological perspective, uh, drawing from my psychological training. And so what that means is that I focus on first individuals in context. So certainly from a psychological perspective, and as we think about uh, leadership, it's important to understand individual differences and the competencies, skills, and experiences that people, uh, that employees, that team members are bringing to the table. But the reality is, is that we also have to pay attention to contextual factors. And so as I think about sort of the implications of this in my work with organizations, it's allowed me to really engage organizations and leaders with a perspective on the unique needs that each organization actually has. Again, those whether it's sector differences, it's cultural differences, there may be uh, global issues that need to be taken into account. But I draw on that ecological framework to think about the varying dynamics that the leaders that I'm working with or the functions that I'm working with are trying to navigate. And then as I think about supporting individuals, it's sort of, we've got to also adapt to the unique perspective that each individual brings to that work as we try to create solutions that are going to be relevant and actually effective in those organizations. It's just been a really interesting journey. And it's been a natural bridge in thinking about equity and inclusion perspectives. It is not necessarily a traditional, the, the formal way that we sometimes think about you know, diversity training. I think we're far beyond that. And it's really compelled me as a leader to challenge myself in role to think about how do we center equity and inclusion for all? Because sometimes I think historically we've done ourselves a disservice by only thinking that diversity, equity, inclusion was relevant for certain marginalized groups. But the reality is, and what the research said, you know, suggests is that when we bring in diverse voices and when we 
take that contextual lens, it really helps us drive what is so key today for retention, for engagement. It helps us to create those contexts for belonging, for engagement. And we know it also helps elevate outcomes because when our workforce is representative of the communities that we serve, our our products, our solutions, those things that we're producing are often more relevant to those whose needs we are trying to meet, whatever that industry is. You know, you've said a few things I really want to comment on because I think they're really important. One, you talked about the interplay between the individual person and the various contexts that influence and affect them. Let's talk a little bit about what some of those contexts may be. First of all, what is affecting and influencing people that they're bringing with them? So it's not just the individual, it's also the ether, if you will, in which they live that's important. So let's talk about that a little bit. I love that question. And so I can think about, let's just say someone who is earlier or mid-career executive. And so I'm actually thinking about kind of a hodgepodge, if you will. But I, uh, for example, uh, worked with leader, for example, who originally was from Australia, moved to most, you know, stateside to work, uh, went to law school, was promoted up into a leadership position for a New York-based global organization, was given a choice of locations to work and thought it might be interesting to the Caribbean and to lead uh, a function there. Well, what ended up transpiring once this leader was enrolled, there was a, a whole different cultural milieu that this individual had to become introduced to and navigate around. Same organization, but different geographic influences, forces, and cultural dynamics in terms of the expectations of that individual's team and what was going to actually be effective as they led. And so part of my work, this is an executive coaching consultation, was understanding the influences in terms of um, this leader's development, who they were as an individual, the values that they had brought with them in terms of their upbringing, how those things were shaped and formed in a U.S.-based law firm and in a pretty kind of tight and competitive New York-based home office. But then they had to translate that. And, you know, we hear all the time about the need to be agile and adaptive and even more as I think we think about this moment um, in terms of where we are, even as it relates to all of the uncertainty and the response with the pandemic and now, you know, the sort of ongoing uh, and unfolding picture that continues to emerge. So the agility, the uh, the adaptability, all of those things were pieces that we worked with, but I would not have been able to be effective if I wasn't able to really listen for the unique needs, take into account that leader's background to help them really navigate and deal effectively with what was at hand. Thank you for that example. That's really quite illustrative because you're talking about the personalized aspect of the development process and in preparing that executive for the transition and the move to a different cultural background. Let me ask you about corporations in general. What are they doing well with respect to this personalization part that you're talking about? And maybe where is there room for growth in terms of the more traditional diversity, equity, and inclusion approaches that are often out there? 
Well, I certainly think in this current moment, in terms of what is working well, there is a heightened sensitivity to the significance and importance of what it means to truly be an equitable organization. We were all propelled into a space where we had to acknowledge the need to uh, meet people where they were. I think obviously the, the, this, the time period during the pandemic, as I already mentioned, was a time of great uncertainty. And then we had, you know, as, as has been said before, the multiple pandemics. Uh, we were dealing with significant issues of race. This was certainly not the first time, but it was, I think, a, a heightened awareness. Uh, we were no longer able to just keep it on the margins, right? It was a, It affected us in very different ways. And so I think that organizations are are trying to really be sensitive to what it means to create a sense of belonging, of engagement, of thinking more deeply about equity. And what's really interesting now is that, again, there are different cross sections in terms of what's driving this need now. And so while we may have only thought about this from an identity perspective and in multiple identities, even when the conversation was around intersectionality, now we have issues. I was actually on a, on a call earlier today where the topic was around remote work and engagement. And so you have geographically dispersed teams and this real imperative to create a sense of belonging, to create connection that crosses so many factors, right? It, it has to do with not only the, the traditional paradigms, but again, these geographic issues, it has to do with accessibility. There, there are new pieces to the conversation that are coming into play. And to be candid and honest, I don't know that we have the answers because the dynamics continue to change. So we've seen sort of the, the pendulum swing to, okay, it's work from home. We're all remote and organizations shifting to, to make that happen and to make that work. And then there was a sense, okay, we will, you know, this is going to be a permanent you know, saying remote work is is going to be the new way of life. And, and now, you know, we're seeing where, okay, we're going to really be hybrid. So work from home is actually going to truly be hybrid and we've got to figure out that balance. But it's bringing up now new questions around equity. So now it is, how are we going to do performance management equitably when we have some teams that are in person, when we have individuals who are fully remote and then some that are hybrid? those informal ways that actually were drivers before, there's a new entry point. And so I think we continue to wrestle with it, but because it is so critical for our workforce and because the talent needs are so fragile at this point, there's a heightened sensitivity. And I think that that hopefully will help us as we move forward uh, in this ongoing work. You know, one of the things that strikes me is I'm thinking about Dr. Martin Luther King, and one of the things that I've always loved about him and his approach and philosophy, it was never just about Black people. He always saw a vision of all people, of all different racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, holding hands together and marching forward together. That was the picture and that was the vision. And we have still a ways to go to fully realize that. So his his dream and the picture is still relevant because we haven't quite achieved it yet, though we've made significant strides and gains in that direction. So you're talking about even other elements now about people who are remote or 
dispersed geographically and other aspects of the workplace environment. And you've worked in some places where you've had to be very innovative or help your clients or company to be innovative about how they would engage, for example, the diverse members of their community. So give us some examples about the kind of innovation that's really necessary to be successful in this marketplace. Interesting question. So I think as a broader trend in business, one of the things that we're seeing is the need for digital transformation. Right. We, we see that across the board as a key priority. I saw I was reading a report last night where I think board members have noted that that's a key priority, along with diversity, equity, inclusion uh, initiatives, interestingly, in that top five. And so I think that as we continue to move forward, particularly with more complex organizational structures, Leveraging technology in new and innovative ways is really going to be critical as we are trying to drive engagement. And so there are a number of of platforms. We see interesting uses and ways in which technology is leveraged across the board. And I think we'll see more of that in terms of driving engagement because we can't be in you know, we're not in person in the same ways that we were. And I was referencing those informal interactions that really were so uh, critical. And so we've certainly seen the uptick in use of all sorts of, of platforms that really help ensure that we're able to communicate. I think there's going to be a lot more focus in terms of really equipping managers with the skills of connecting in, in different ways. We've got to learn different approaches. And as I was mentioning before, from a performance management standpoint, we're going to evaluate performance in ways that are equitable as well. And so we're seeing lots of different models rolling out um, in addition to where experimenting with quarterly engagement, really thinking about purpose in terms of when we come together, when we ask team members to come in, how are we going to, to, to really maximize and optimize that time? So again, I think it's, it's a combination of digital transformation. And then perhaps maybe it's that old school, you know, hey, we, we've got to care. We've got to show people that we care, that we're willing to connect, that we're going to make that extra effort from a leadership standpoint to get to know them, to understand them and ensure that we are engaging to drive the culture forward. So it seems like a lot of intentionality is necessary in order to keep the connections going and in order to figure out, as you say, maximize maybe some more limited face-to-face time because you're not seeing the person every day face-to-face. So if it's only quarterly or even less, perhaps, if you're really talking about a real true global context, then you have to figure out how best to spend that time. And so you're saying companies need to to think about this and figure Mm -hmm. out what they're going to do that may be different than what they've always done. And so that it works effectively in these new structures is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. And, you know, the the word that came to mind, it's it's our foundation, it's trust. We need to create a sense of trust I can't tell you how many times I've worked with clients who lament, and this was even before before the pandemic, how many times their one-on-ones were canceled with their leaders. Simple things like that. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've got to cancel. I need to shift this. And it was never that time. And so in this marketplace, that matters. 
if I am saying, and I'm, I could be a leader that's saying all the right things, I could talk about how I'm committed to engagement or as an organization, let's think about the voice of the C-suite that is sharing about our values, our people, people culture, our strategy around providing opportunities. That's a voice. But if my day-to-day is a series of reduced meeting times or rescheduled meetings or not seeing delivery on that promise, that is going to have an impact over time. And this is why we see people making different choices in organizations, because I think trust is imperative, really having opportunities for development, for growth, but words matter and and seeing those things play out. You know, this is really significant because if a meeting is canceled and the worker is only working virtually, you're not going to see them in the hall. They're not going to see you in the hall. So they're even more isolated than they otherwise would be. And the impact of the missed meeting, especially if it's not rescheduled in a timely way, is even more profound. And I think those who may be in the workplace may not recognize how isolating it can be for the one who is remote and the meetings get canceled. So I think you make a very good point about the intentional aspect of keeping the connection going and what impact it has on trust in the relationships and just getting to know each other at a deeper level, or even just being on the same page about what the work is going forward as well. It takes a whole lot more when you're in sort of a, a mixed context as far as the digital aspect of it. So, you know, let me ask you something else. I know you have worked deeply in healthcare. You know a lot about healthcare organizations. And there are some innovations that healthcare people are doing on the talent side. What have you seen that's really maybe innovative there? And what are some of the unique challenges, perhaps, that healthcare organizations have and that you've helped them to meet? Right. Well, certainly the talent needs uh, were tremendous, as you might imagine, in particularly at the height of the pandemic. But still, now it's the burnout that was experienced that led the individuals to really think about whole different careers. But I was involved in some very exciting um, work uh, in healthcare that I found to be an incredible gift. And it really intersects with inclusion in, in a variety of different ways. But because of the talent, shortage, uh, there was a real sort of renewed focus on workforce development. And so I was a part of a team that really that worked hard on uh, developing programs, uh, student programs, recruiting programs, recruiting students for healthcare programs that would create pipelines into health, but then also offer a path for fairly rapid mobility. One of the benefits of healthcare is you may be aware is that the training you can go from uh, essentially being you know ha- not having a healthcare credential to being fully employed with a credential in a matter of months, and then from there, because of the richness and robust nature of the community college system, along with networking with four-year schools, individuals can move up, can steadily work. And so for communities um, that have often been overlooked when it comes to recruitment initiatives, there's this prime opportunity where individuals could actually afford to make that investment if it leads to income mobility in a shorter window of time. Because of course, that's the dilemma. Often people uh, may not feel like they can take time off or go to school because 
there is a dependency on income coming in all the time. And by creating innovative ways to provide scholarships for individuals to pay for that tuition, in some instances, employ them while they're uh, in school, we are actually able to sponsor that. And it's a win for the communities that we serve as well as for the organization. And what's really innovative, uh, there was an effort in one of the regions that I was working where it was a partnership between a local foundation, multiple health systems, and many of the area corporations to do this at scale. And so there were initiatives to target, again, parts of the community that had been overlooked historically from a recruitment standpoint where the, you know, the social determinants of health were creating instances of risk. But by targeting employment, by really elevating the income mobility and providing training opportunities, you, you lift all of those indicators up. So it becomes a win for the organization, as well as those communities that trickles down. You are increasing over time the tax base, which also then in turn helps schools. So there's, there's, there are really exciting workforce initiatives that I think healthcare is well positioned for, in addition to then what that creates in once, uh, whether it's an existing uh, employee or team member for increasing mobility. So similarly, once those individuals were in the organization, what also happened, there were lots of innovations around mobility programs to provide development opportunities and promote people into higher levels of position or become credentialed across the organization. Uh, if they had been clinicians, perhaps it was moving them into another area if they were burnt out, for example. Uh, but keeping that talent and institutional knowledge, you could also have someone who had been in more of a corporate role move into a much needed clinical position. So what I'm well. hearing in this is how important these partnerships are for mutual benefit. You're talking about the corporation benefiting. You're talking about individuals benefiting, whole communities benefiting. And in today's world of talent shortage, being able to think about different and newer pathways forward, faster pathways, ones that pay as you go along, and ones that reach out to people who may in the past have been ignored, may not have been included in these systems. And so when we think about right now, people are talking about the talent shortage, there's probably talent somewhere that you could leverage, that you could reach out to that you haven't thought about maybe historically in the community People who are looking for opportunity or they may not even know what opportunity exists at your organization until you interact with them and see where there may be some mutual synergies, I guess I would say. So it's really putting on a different set of lenses to see what you normally don't see or maybe didn't have to see in the past, but now it's a different world. Absolutely. And so even from a people and culture strategy perspective, certainly there has there have been efforts to really challenge uh, leaders to think about barriers. Right. So when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion and justice, right, when we get into that in that moment of justice, we not only want to work for inclusion, but if we recognize that there have been existing barriers then we are, we, are the, the motivation is to eradicate those as well. So for example, there's been often, there's been a recent focus on evaluating, really reviewing job descriptions and what those qualifications were and if they were really relevant. So just a couple of, of quick examples. There were at times minimum requirements where there was say a formal degree. 
but you had individuals who were within organizations who had worked for many years and had gained experience, were sometimes doing the jobs, but couldn't be promoted into a role because of a requirement like that. And so we've challenged, do we really need that? Is that actually serving as a barrier? Is that actually helping the organization in any way? And is it necessary? So we've seen those types of uh, requirements scrutinized in, I think, meaningful and important ways. Also, sometimes there were barriers like that to certain levels of leadership. Uh, And so I was fortunate to work with an organization that uh, lessened those criteria in order to promote someone internally into a director level role because that had been a previous barrier. This was someone who had a wealth of experience, but the organization would have um, been, it would have been a huge loss if this person had left. But because of, of challenging that status quo, we were really able to to elevate that leader into the rightful, in their right position and reward them for their loyalty. You know, a lot of companies are afraid of changing their requirements, such as education for this next level promotion or whatever it is. So in this example that you just shared, how successful was that person and also other people who have had the experience and the background, maybe without all the formal education. What's been your experience and the success of those individuals? Was seen as an invaluable member of the team. So they were incredibly successful. Uh, But this was actually a reward for, I think, 20 plus years of work and service. So they were, it was tried and true. This just had been this arbitrary sort of limitation that had been in place. And so we really worked to eradicate that barrier. But in my experience, I've only seen success stories when there was the right support. Like I said, in many of these instances, the individuals already had the experience. They were really doing close to or at that level of work, but were not being compensated at that level of work, which is also, I think, important as well when we think about really all the ways that we can really move across the entire talent life cycle to ensure that we're centering equity and inclusion. But again, I think the organization would have had a would have experienced a huge loss if that individual had left and taken all of that institutional knowledge with them. Okay, so we've been talking about talent retention for a little bit. And I know another topic that's near and dear to your heart is really about making businesses scalable. What are some of the ingredients for scalability? And this is such a challenge for a lot of organizations who are growing today. Right. Right. And so specifically, one of the challenges that I've worked specifically with as it relates to scalability is around scalability of learning. And this connects back to this issue of retention, because one of the things that we see consistently from uh, employees with recent surveys is that they want to know that they are going to have opportunities to grow and develop. And historically, there had been, I would say, a focus on sometimes programs that were exclusively for um, high potentials or maybe cohort-based that were wonderful and amazing for those individuals who were selected. But now the demand is everyone's raising their hand there, and that is a key decision-making point as to whether or not they will stay or leave the organization. So they're, they're actually scanning is for this and really seeing if their own organizations are going to put forth that effort and investment. And so that becomes a real issue. And it goes back to the conversation around digital transformation. 
And so one of the ways in which organizations are doing that uh, and uh, not only for um, at the advantage of the employee, but also to help upskill for the needed agility and the competencies that are dynamic and changing. They're using uh, digital content to create sort of on-demand opportunities for learning. And they're combining that with the more traditional approaches that might be cohort-based because there's value in those. There's there's value in taking, you know, individuals through, say, cohort-based or what we think of as sort of foundational leadership courses that would align with key competencies that are needed for that unique business. So there's also some of that contextual tailoring will bring that element in as well. Again, allowing and enabling the entire team to have access to content. And that would then be used as a way to, as I said, sort of they could raise their hand, they could take advantage of it, they can tailor this and work with their leaders around their own individual development plans. This is a way that then organizations can identify who's motivated, who really is wanting to, to grow and to develop. And so this data the and how much uh, systems have been accessed can be a part of an equation that's used to, to think about internal mobility to that employee's advantage. And so by leveraging technology, making help and, and align that to enable, again, that scalability organizations are able to meet this key demand that uh, employees have around development. But also, as I said, it helps position them well for the competencies that may be needed in this ongoing, changing environment where we all need to be adaptive and agile. You know, I'm so delighted to hear you talk about this because I've been saying for years that we really need to develop all people in all positions and all jobs. It's really part of attracting talent to your organization if they know it's going to be a place of development. It's also part of retention. And then you're showing organizations how to make it scalable through the use of technology. And therefore, people don't have to just be selected into the high potential group or into the executive group. They're learning every day. And that's really valuable, whether they stay in that organization or move elsewhere. They can take the learning with them. So I do think that that's huge. It's much huger than a lot of corporations believe that it is. They don't understand the connection between both attracting and retaining talent and this continuous learning opportunity that's available in the organization. So thank you for bringing that out. That's really a big point. You know, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is that since you've worked in so many settings and so many places, One of the unique and special places where you've also worked is with clergy people. And I wanted to talk about that. What are you doing with clergy and what is unique for them? What are some of their unique challenges and scenarios and situations that may be different and the same from working with corporate leaders or a nonprofit or others? Very different sector, very different dynamics. And so, yes, I've been privileged uh, to uh, work with a number of clergy programs, both in the space of leadership development, but also in terms of clergy health initiatives. And of course, those two topics are interconnected, but it is a very different setting to work in. I would say that some people, sometimes we don't think about it in this way, but really clergy leaders are leading sort of a quasi, usually it's, it's, there may be staff depending on the size of the church, but 
there's a, a, a great variation in terms of, say, staff support. So many times these, these leaders are functioning essentially as chief officers, if you will, in a, in a religious context, but sometimes doing that alone or with a, you know, very small staff without the resources that some of our organizations have. So that's where that connection to stress and health and well-being really comes in. Because if, for example, a leader is in a role where there are stressors, perhaps there are financial constraints, they don't have the staff, they are expected to be on call seven days a week. It really brings up very unique dynamics. And even when there are resources, the expectations that their uh, members of congregations may have about essentially how those leaders behave based on, say, their own interpretation or their own belief system can add quite a bit of pressure on leaders as they are trying to carry out their role. They're human too. Uh, and they have their own pain points. They are often put on pedestals. And as a result, though, the coping and the support that that is really helpful uh, can be quite different from that of a leader in a, say, non-religious context. So what is it that you provide them exactly that makes a difference? So I've been in a position where I have uh, led leadership development sessions or been a part of programs specifically geared. And so there again is that contextualization. And so there you would be promoting similar leadership competencies, but also acknowledging those unique dynamics that clergy may be facing. And I think that though the space of those sessions really are providing key aspects of, of community, of support, of being heard. They, it really drives home the sense that they are not alone in their struggles. Because remember, isolation is a, is a key factor. You know, they're not necessarily a part of a staff team. They're, they're different, you know, denominational structures, certainly. And I've worked with a variety. I've worked with uh, independent church structures, uh, as well as those that connectional systems like the United Methodist Church and, and others. So each of those have different dynamics. But I think we're always focused on trying to create community, trying to help them uh, and to create a safe space where they could bring their full selves and let go of sometimes those those difficult uh, expectations that others might have of them. Also, as a coach, that was a I've been in a, a leadership coach for many, and again, there it is about creating a safe space of acceptance where leaders could let their guard down. And this is not altogether different from what I would try to create. But I think that the need and the opportunity to be able to do that sometimes felt more unique for these individuals because so many of their constituents would have these expectations that there was a sense that they, even if they were with their staff or with members of, say, whatever their leadership boards were, they couldn't let down their hair. They couldn't necessarily be as candid as say a leader in another sector might be able to be with their own peers just because of, of the different dynamics of the role. Yes, I really love that. You're talking about what it's like to be in a resource-constrained environment, whether that's with people, with that's finances or whatever it may be, and also being on this pedestal and where do you really go to have these candid conversations? So providing the support, providing the community is important. And I think with a lot of chief executive officers, that's also true. But however, you're saying 
with the clergy, it's even more profound, which I certainly understand, and that makes sense as well. As a woman of faith yourself, and you've been in all these places, whether it's corporate, whether it's nonprofit, government, consulting, and also working with the clergy, how has your faith been a part of your journey? And particularly talk a little bit about times when maybe you had to take some tough stands and how difficult that was to take those stands in some context. Certainly, I think I, my goodness, I can't imagine what this journey would look, would have looked like without the grounding of faith and with that orientation. I'll give maybe two quick, you know, examples. Uh, one is in my role as a coach. So I'll think about those one-on-one interactions that I have. I believe that my calling is to really help people realize the fullness of their vocation. And I count that as an incredible privilege to have been able to walk alongside, literally at this point, hundreds of leaders in their own journey and their quest for vocation and fulfillment. And so when I enter into those situations, and it it has nothing to do with their belief system or their faith, this is about my understanding of, of humanity, of individual potential. And so I go into those sessions with this deep belief that I want to convey in every interaction, my belief in their ability, in their strength, in their fortitude, and their ability to overcome. And so I think of it as a journey of discovery. And I also usually at the end, it's hard to part, but I'm often in a position where I'm feeling like I got more out of, of walking alongside, you know, than the, the leader that I'm working with, because it's always so rich and it's always an opportunity for, for learning for me. But, but I think that deep belief is, is certainly um, a key element in say one to one-on-ones. When we think about the, at the organizational level, as I, I've already mentioned, I do think about justice. And in terms of my own faith perspective, I think of the role that that, that Jesus played in terms of theology and, and social justice in that interconnection, uh, in terms of removing barriers and bringing you know, healing to communities. And so I think a, a lot of my work, again, reg- you know, across sectors, certainly I saw it in healthcare, essentially where I am in a position to try to help bring about change and transformation, whether that is for a function, you know, in a particular organization, if I am working and being true to values, to principles around equity, uh, around employee experience that align with belonging and, and enabling individuals to bring their full selves to work, I feel like I am, I am doing God's work right in that moment. Because I am hopefully creating space. I am hopefully enabling people to make choices that actually align with their own values and show up in ways that are meaningful to them. I have been in situations in organizations where I may not have felt like decisions that were being made were in the best interest, or I might have been advising or working with leaders who were in a place where they were facing a dilemma. And so how essentially my role there was to help them think about, it was not to tell, it, it's never to project whatever my beliefs are, but to help them think about what their values are, to identify those things and then align their actions 
with those. And certainly that was my task as a leader. But it does mean that we will find ourselves in situations where we're having to make difficult choices. And ultimately, in those spaces, I know who I have to answer to. Those were the guardrails that helped me to be able to navigate difficult spaces to make difficult choices and hopefully be true to myself. You mentioned something that I'm so excited about because one of the things that I always say is that marketplace ministry leaders are successful in the marketplace because of who they are in Christ and what they believe and what they know. And you've highlighted that by saying just the fundamental valuing of the person and individual people and knowing that they are gifted and knowing that they have abilities and coming alongside them to raise those up so that they can be seen and utilized. That's one part of it. And then likewise, at the organizational level, thinking with more of that justice lens of what is the right thing to do? What should we do for people? And having a Christ-based perspective is really key to that because you could easily say, well, it's not my problem. Just turn your head because that's too hard. I don't want to make the sacrifice that's required in taking that stand. And likewise, helping those who are on the front line from your consulting role where they do have to take those stands every day and having the support to align their actions with their values. That's tremendous value that you're bringing uh, to the marketplace to be able to do that. So thank you for mentioning it and stating it in that way. You mentioned learning several times in this conversation. So let me ask this, because you have been in all those different places with different lenses and perspectives, what would you say are some of the key things you personally have learned along the way from each of those big settings, whether it's corporate, nonprofit, or you know, faith-based or wherever? Well, one of the things, right, that that being in this space does, it does provide opportunities for vicarious learning, certainly. And I would say that it has given life to the some of the foundational elements of my training that I referenced earlier on. So this ecological lens, for example, one, one of the uh, leaders that I have really appreciated or thought leaders in the space of, of, of leadership is Ron Heifetz. And he uses the ballroom analogy and, and he talks about the fact that leaders need to get up on the balcony and take a larger view. And so I think that for me, uh, that is a, is a hallmark and it aligns with that ecological perspective that I mentioned. And so I am in my own personal life and in my work with uh, organizations and leaders, I'm, I'm looking at the big picture and trying to make sure that I'm not missing moments. But also, I think the other piece of that theory is that we've got to also be able to go up and down the stairs so that we don't miss what's happening on the dance floor either. So, so that's sort of a, a, a life lesson that I'm, that I'm learning is to really take things in at multiple levels and use that information in service of my clients as well as myself personally. Well, that's an interesting analogy about being up on the balcony and then also being on the dance floor. So just extend that a little bit. What can you see from the balcony and what can you see uniquely from the dance floor? I love that. Right. So, right. On the balcony, right. And we think about on an organizational level. And and this is interesting in terms of leader level. You can see perhaps the different functions. You have information, access to information, visibility 
into decisions that are at play that have a ripple effect on other parts of the organization. And it will it's important to really think at that level in order to be able to strategize, in order to be able to, to make informed choices. What you get at the level of the dance floor, it literally, let's think about when you're dancing, you don't want to step on anyone's toes, right? You've got to like monitor what's happening right around you. So you get the wisdom of day-to-day operations. Right. And really what is impacting and contributing to outcomes at a sort of more of that micro level. Also critically important because we can be up on the balcony strategizing with that big picture. But if we don't have insight into what's actually happening on the ground, we may make the wrong decisions. And similarly, that higher level visibility is important so that we can make better choices, because perhaps there's actually some sort of commotion over on the other side of the balcony. I can't see it immediately because of where I am, but it's going to be important, right? That there's communication around that in the organization so that I can still make that adaptation. And so I think this drives home why it's important for leaders that why communication along the cascade, if you will, of that organization is so critically important and why we have to stay connected and, and be intentional about listening to all voices for better outcomes. Yeah, that's really huge because sometimes though you need the view from the balcony and the dance floor, you may not be in both places at the same time. Mm-hmm. But other people are in those places and we can listen to them and we can elevate their voices and include their voices and learn from them as well. So thank you for saying that, too, because some leaders mistakenly think they are the only ones that are going to be in these places. But you have people in your organization who are going to be in all these places and leveraging that opportunity is important for success moving forward. So thank you for saying that as well. So Monica, we have covered a lot of ground so far and people have heard all the various ways that you can add value to them and their organizations. How can people reach you? Probably the easiest way to reach me is via LinkedIn. I use that as a point of connection. So you can look for me on LinkedIn, Monica Corbett Rivers. Easy to find. Search for me. I'd love to hear from you. Monica Corbett Rivers. And would you spell the Corbett part? Because that can be different. Yes, yes. So it's C-O-R-B-I-T-T. Thank you very much. All right. So great. So now you have it. You know how to reach her and to have an additional conversation. So Monica, as we're wrapping things up today, what additional words of wisdom do you want to leave for my community of corporate executives? So I think I want to draw upon someone else's words, uh, the words of uh, Parker Palmer, who is amazing thought leader. Uh, he leads the Center for Courage and Renewal, uh, but he has a book uh, and the title is Let Your Life Speak. And I love the wisdom in that. And what he essentially challenges us to think about is essentially he says, before you tell your life, what you intend to do with it, listen for what it is trying to tell you to do with it. And I think as leaders or in those who are high oriented towards achievement, have been reinforced for having the plan, having those next steps. What I found in my work with clients is that eventually, while that leads to a certain level of success, it tops out. People end up hitting a wall. They think they can plan and they become frustrated because the the path is no longer linear. But I think if we pause, if we 
become more present with our reality, let our lives speak. What are the things that, that provide richness in our lives? When do we feel a sense of flow in terms of our work? Whether that, and, and I think that's true, whether we're talking about in our jobs and outside our personal lives, we can actually create the combination of activities that will lead to an optimal life and hopefully have the realization both from a vocational standpoint as well as av- avocationally as well. I love that point because it speaks to the fact that we are people of purpose. You know, God already has a purpose in mind, you know, for each of us. And it's our work, if you will, to look and discover what that is. And the same in the workplace. To look around at people who are working with us and for us, we will see the giftings in them. And we'll be able to call out sometimes some purposes that they may not even have identified yet for themselves. So I think just having the expectation or notion that something about you will speak to you rather than you having to dictate to it. It's like a listening mode. It's like in prayer. Yeah, we talk to God, but God also talks back. And so that's what I love about what you just said right now. That is really, really powerful. So thank you so much, Monica, for sharing that. Thank you for being here with me today on the show. I really have appreciated hearing everything that you've talked about on diversity, equity, inclusion, and just life. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Cameron. It's been a pleasure. You are quite welcome. So we will close the show today with some scriptures that come from Colossians, the fourth chapter, starting with verse two. And it says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So always remember, you are where you are for unique and specific purpose. Remember to pray for your brothers and sisters who may be in other circumstances, some circumstances that are difficult. In this letter, Paul was imprisoned and he asked for the prayers of the saints. Also remember that where you are, God has you there to speak his wisdom to those people who do not yet know him. You are that light in a dark place sometimes and you want your words to be those words that are seasoned with salt, which means you're making a difference. You're preserving some things. You're making things taste better. And also with the grace of God, with the kindness of God. So have a blessed day and thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening, and remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.